In Matthew chapter 9, we read of a portion of our Lord's ministry. It was a really good trip. The Bible says he went about the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Verse 35. Pretty good meeting. Make a fine report in a mission letter. Seemed like it'd be a great occasion for rejoicing, exultation. The next word in verse 36 is but. In spite of all the people that have been healed and everybody he talked to, everybody he touched, everybody he tried to help was healed. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then, saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Dear God, would you please empower and direct me by your spirit to say only but all that you want said. I ask that you bind Satan and the unclean spirits that follow him that they would have no effect on our meeting tonight. And ask that each of us now would take a moment to promise you will be good ground. That we'll receive gladly the seed of your word and allow you to direct us any way you want us to go. Bless the preaching of your word and our receiving of it, the hearing of it, and then the responding to it, please. And we will give you the thanks for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a wonderful privilege that we as believers are given to unite with others in prayer. You ever had somebody ask you to pray for something? And you did. And the Lord answered and, and you felt like you had entered into their labor and you rejoiced. Did anybody ever ask you to pray for something and you forgot? And they'd come up and say, hey, remember I should pray for such and such? And you're thinking, oh, brother, dear Lord, help him, please, amen. Yes, yes, I remember that. I was praying for that earlier today. Just a little earlier today. What if the Lord Jesus asked us to pray for something? Would you do it? What if he already did? And we forgot. Brother Cowling, his wonderful message last night, told us this is the only time Jesus ever asks us to pray for anything on his behalf. Well, the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Lord gave us an outline, an example, a model prayer. But he only said 
on my behalf, would you do this? Would you pray for laborers? I want you to notice in our passage the perception of our Savior. How do you view the unsaved world? Oh, they're doing crazy things. All kind of body piercings and tattoos and mutilations and weird behavior, wicked behavior. We get irritated at it sometimes. We make fun of it sometimes. We look at those crazy things they do and we get upset because those unsafe people are running around behaving just like um, unsaved people. Truth is, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every individual. And they try to fill it with drugs. They try to fill it with booze. They try to fill it with immoral behavior. They try to fill it with uh, material possessions. And they go around in an endless cycle. They have problems. They feel depressed. They take booze or drugs to numb the feelings of depression. They call that self-medicating sometimes. And then when they come out of their hangover or down from their high, they learn that their behavior has made their problems worse. And now they're depressed more and they take some more booze and some more drugs and on and on and on it goes. On a treadmill like the hamster on the wheel in the cage, and no matter how fast they run, no matter how much they accumulate, no matter how hard they try, they go nowhere. I was in a Target years ago getting a prescription filled. The lady behind the counter had more metal in her face than anybody I'd seen before or since. She had several earrings in each ear. She had stuff in her eyebrows and, and uh, both sides, and she had stuff in her nose, and she had stuff on her, her lips. Very nice lady, very friendly, very cheerful. Long line, slow. She was being pleasant. I gave her a tract. I said, uh, I'm pastor of First Baptist Church in Bridgeport. Come visit us. We'll be nice to you. And she suddenly got real serious, and she said, Thanks. Most pastors aren't. I thought I knew the reason, but I played dumb. It's not hard for me to play dumb. I don't live very far from there. I said, why? She said, because of this. And I have a hunch, preacher, it wasn't a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a United Methodist that let her know before they told her God loved her, before they told her she is an eternal soul that'll spend forever in heaven or hell, before they did anything to share with her the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had to let her know they didn't like that stuff in her face. That's not how our Lord sees our world. He saw them as weak. They fainted. Did you ever faint? It's a total loss of the ability to control yourself. 
What would you do if somebody fainted tonight? Would you laugh at them? Would you take their picture and put it on Instagram? Would you say, ah, you're going to be embarrassed. You fainted in front of all those people. First Baptist Church of Hammond, Servants Conference, you fainted. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. You'd try to help them. You'd fan them. You'd give her back so they could get air. You'd get some medical attention. You'd get smelling salts or one of my socks. He saw them as weak. He saw them as wandering running around on the hamster wheel without purpose, without meaning, without life. My dad used to tell about the farmer that had a good harvest. I've never met a farmer that had a good year. And uh, so he said, what are you going to do with that? He said, man, I'm going I'm to buy more land. He said, why? He said, so I can plant more corn. He said, why don't I do that? He said, so I can grow a bigger harvest. He said, why don't I do that? He said, so I can make more money. He said, why do you want to do that? He said, so I can buy more land and plant more corn and have a bigger harvest, make more money, buy more land, plant more corn. Round and around and around. Some of you knew my friend Clint Miller. Years ago, he was in the Ontario, California airport, and his boys, Cheyenne and Cody, were young, and they ran up, and they said, Dad, there's a movie star in this airport. You may or may not know who this was. I didn't, but there was a lady named Nidra Volz. She played the maid, Adelaide, on an old TV program called Different Strokes. I don't know if it was good or bad. I don't know anything about it. And Clint Miller said... Did you give her a tract? And the voice said, no. He said, well, we better go give her a tract. They stood in line. Ms. Volt said, are those your boys? He said, yes, ma'am. She said, they're fine boys. He said, thank you, ma'am. Can I ask you a question? If you died today, do you know whether or not you'd go to heaven? She said, no. He gave her the gospel. And she prayed out loud and asked the Lord Jesus to save her. And then she said, I want you to know something. This means something to me. It really does. A couple weeks later, got a big 8 by 10 publicity photo in the mail. And she'd written at the bottom to my friend, Pastor Miller, thanks for what you did for me. Not long after that, the phone rang. He, he picked it up, and a young man said, I'm the personal assistant for Nidra Volts, and she'd like to come visit your church. Brother Miller had just recently started the church. Had about 80 people. He said, we'd love to have her come. And he let her say a word. She stood up in front of that small crowd, and she said, all my life I've had it all, but now I have everything because your pastor led me to Christ. Everybody else saw a chance to get a movie star's autograph, a chance to say that you saw somebody famous, a chance to meet somebody that everybody knows. But Clint Miller saw a soul. The Savior's perception, but notice the Savior's passion. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved, moved with compassion. They tell me, 
that word compassion is the strongest word for emotion that exists in the Greek language. It literally means, they say, to have the internal organs yearn. Have you ever heard something bad that happened to someone you felt an actual twinge inside? I heard these statistics many years ago from Dr. Hudson. He said that uh, if you take all the unsaved people in the world and put them in a single file line, it would circle the globe seven times. 175,000 miles. He said the line got 20 miles longer every day. He said if we could stop all the births and stop all the deaths and keep winning people to Christ at the same rate we are now, it would take 400 years to win the United States of America to Christ and 4,000 years to win the world to Christ. More recently, I read that there are every day 185,000 deaths and 360-some thousand births, almost twice as many births every day, 367,000 births. I read that if we wanted to reach the world in the next 20 years, we would need to start one million churches. I read that there are in our world of now some 8 billion people, three Point one billion who have never heard the name of Jesus. And they don't all live in China or Azerbaijan or some remote place in Burma. They, they live in your neighborhood, some of them. We had a backyard club several years ago while I was still pastoring on King Road, same road our church is on. Cross the Dixie Highway, maybe a mile maybe a mile and a quarter from our church. And, and a little boy came to that club, and I have to believe he lived nearby. Maybe somebody picked him up in a car. I don't know the details, but, but he probably wasn't very far away from there. And, and one day, the person running the club asked him to read a verse of Scripture, and he started reading the verse, and he came to the name of the Lord Jesus, and he stopped, and he said, I can't say that. It's a bad word. A mile or so from our church. Living in the United States of America and all that he knew about the precious, blessed, wonderful name of our Savior was that it was a curse word. We've seen the multitudes tonight. A moving representation of them. But the fact is, for most of us, what I've just said are just numbers. Nobody will have trouble going to sleep tonight. Nobody will be so burdened that they feel like missing a meal. Oh, maybe we have a heightened awareness of our responsibility. We may do a little bit extra, but it wasn't that way for the Lord Jesus. It bothered him. It moved him. It grieved him. He cared deeply about lost people. Sometimes missionaries would come to our church and they'd 
try to get our people to love the people in Brazil. You know what? I couldn't get them to love the people in Bridgeport. They didn't get them to love the people in Brazil. But if you get somebody to love Jesus, you'll love what he loves and you'll care about what he cares about and your heart will be like his heart. His perception, his passion, notice his problem. Our text says that the opportunity was large. The harvest truly is plenteous. Would you say with me, the harvest is plenteous? Would you say that with me, please? The harvest is plenteous. Would you say it again? The harvest is plenteous. The, out, the opportunity was large, but the outreach was limited. In the economy of God, there's never been a harvest problem. There's been a labor problem. He didn't say pray for souls to be sensitive. He didn't say pray for people to be convicted. Oh, we know the Spirit of God convinces men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He didn't ask us to pray for that. But he did say pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. The opportunity was large. The outreach was limited. Sometimes... You'll hear people say, well, you know, today America's gospel heart and we've lost our Christian roots. We're much of a pagan society and you just can't win people to Christ like you used to. Oh, shut up. Yeah, we're gospel heart and yeah, we got a lot of paganism in our society, but I got news for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ works quite well in pagan societies. Ask the apostle Paul about how he did in Corinth, as pagan a place as you're going to find. Ask him how he did when he rounded places that had never heard the name of Jesus and reclaimed his glorious name and churches were established every place he went. No, no, no. The economy of God never has a harvest problem. Always. A labor problem. People say, well, you can't be built to Christ. Can't be built to Christ like you used to. Can't build churches the old way. Now you mark down two things about those rascals. Number one, they are not witnessing to people. Number two, they disagree with Jesus. Hey, if George Barna and Jesus have a difference of opinion, I'm on Jesus' side. I gave a tract to a guy in an airplane Saturday. And, and he read it, and he trusted Christ, and he'd been raised, I think he said, the Roman Catholic, and he started going to a, a church that did preach the gospel. And he said, man, I really needed that today. Monday, I flew down to Atlanta to preach for my friend Doug Anderson. We had just a little bit of time. He asked me to run some errands with him. And it was just a little time for me to run into the motel and put on my suit and go to dinner with him. And I gave the lady behind the desk a tract. I said, hey, anybody told you that today God loves you? I want to give you something I wrote. tells you how much he loves you. He wants to spend forever with you. Her name was Malaya. I got back after dinner and had just enough time to brush my teeth. But I stopped and Malaya was still there. I said, Malaya, did you read that paper I gave you? She said, yes. Did you understand it? Yes. Did you pray and ask the Lord Jesus to save you like it said in the paper? And she said, yes. Hey, it's not hard. It's hard to get people to do it. 
I didn't win her to Christ. I just gave her a tract. Well, it wasn't, wasn't anything. Anybody here who is incapable of doing that? Opportunity was large. The outreach was limited. Then we come to our Lord's petition. Pray ye. Therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, I want you to know that's a nice slogan for a missions conference. It's a good verse to put on the wall when you're trying to raise money for foreign evangelism. It's a good thing for a missionary to put on the bottom of a car, but that's not what the Lord Jesus intended it as. It is a command to the children of God to pray for labor. Would you say that with it? Would you say pray for laborers? Would you say that? Pray for laborers. It's a simple petition. Pray for laborers. Three words. It's a singular petition. The one thing Jesus asked us to pray for, for him. Do you guys ever have your wife call and ask you to bring home a jug of milk or a loaf of bread? Yeah, you did as well at, as, as, at it as I did, didn't you? My wife would call me, and I, I would take a sticky note, and I would put it on the door that went out from my office to a little hallway where I had my books in the restroom. And then I would put it on the door that went out from the office into uh, the outside where my car was parked. And sometimes I'd put another sticky note on the steering wheel of the car. Because if I did that, there was at least a 50% chance I would remember. (laughs) And you know your attitude, ladies. You may say the exact words, uh, or you may just think them. I asked you to do one thing. Wonder what the Lord thinks. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I might later. I wonder how many of you, if I asked you, you could say it is my daily habit to pray for laborers. Don't raise your hand. You're not bad people. You're just like me. I knew the verse. I knew what it said, but I never took it personally. And I heard somebody mention It was the Lord Jesus' only prayer request. And now, every day, before I pray for my wife, before I pray for our children, before I pray for our grandchildren, before I pray for our pastor friends, before I pray for the deacons and the staff members of our church, before I pray for anybody on the daily prayer list, I pray for labor. Simple petition, singular petition. It's a really significant petition. Laborers are really important. They're so important to the Lord, it's the only thing he asked us to pray for on his behalf. People talk about what the devil's going to do to hinder the spread of the gospel. They say, well, 
The government is going to have increasingly more laws and they're going to restrict our freedoms and they're going to make it harder and harder for us. And COVID was kind of just a, a run through for them to see how much they can get away with. I think there's some truth to that. I think there's people in the government would love for churches like this to close their doors and meetings like this to cease entirely. But I got news for you. Government can't stop the gospel. They can lock the doors of churches. They can put the preachers in jail. They can prohibit the distribution of Bibles, but they cannot stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. President Biden is not more powerful than the gospel. No, no, no. Woke school boards and woke governments and woke city councils are not more powerful than the gospel. Xi Jinping is not more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why, I'm told when Chiang Kai-shek was deposed and Mao Zedong, the communist leader, became the, 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 the dictator of China, there were some three to four million Christians in that land. And now I'm told there are some 90 million and soon will be 100 million. And I am told that by number, not by percentage, but by number, China, if it is not now, will soon be the nation with the most Christians in it in the entire world. No, the government can't stop the gospel. Well, I know what the devil will do is shoot at the leaders. Shoot at the brass buttons. The Bible says I'll... Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. I've seen situations, you have too, where a leader falls and the generation is wounded and some are lost. But I've been to those places, you know about those places, and, and over time God heals and God restores and God sends another man and the work of God goes forward just fine. But I know one way you can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ overnight. Let there be no laborers. Let there be nobody to unlock the doors, turn the lights on, sing in the choir, teach the classes, run the buses, take the offering, welcome the visitors, clean the buildings. Let there be no laborers, and the work of God dries up overnight. Laborers are really important really important to God, really important to our Lord. What if the soft-spoken, conversational preacher had not been willing over 40 years ago to heed the call of the Spirit of God on his life and go to the Philippines, leaving his family, leaving his friends, leaving his home, leaving everything that was familiar to him? What if he'd never gone to Elo, Elo? Thousands, thousands every Saturday meet and hear the word of God. Thousands on a Sunday. The last time I was there, which was some years ago, I counted 98 people in his orchestra. And the orchestra was almost all made up of the children of staff members, and the staff members were almost all converts from early in his ministry. And one of the finest men and one of the greatest missionaries I know, Brother Rick Martin, 
He will admit to 12 to 1400 churches having been started out of the graduates of his Bible college, but I have it on pretty good authority. The number is closer to six or 7,000 that have been started around the world. Laborers are really important. What of a California surf boy discouraged and depressed, hadn't been given a gospel tract and read it and gotten saved and begun to read the New Testament. And he came to the end of the Gospels and he read, go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. No instruction, no good church. And he said, oh, I'm supposed to go tell everybody else this. But if he hadn't strapped his guitar to his back, flipped his long hair over his shoulder, started hitchhiking, gone down through California, through Mexico, through Central America, telling everybody he met the gospel as best he could and seeing very limited results. What if he hadn't gotten to Peru? I witnessed to a cab driver who turned out to be saved and said, you need to talk to Pastor. I took him to his pastor, who was an independent, fundamental Baptist missionary, and tutored him and taught him and said, one day, you need to go off to Hiles Anderson College, where he met his wife, daughter of missionaries to Mexico. What if they had not ignored the counsel of virtually everybody who told them not to follow the call of God on their life and go to Mexico City? Why, they said, that's the graveyard for missions. What if after a less than stellar first year, thousands of hours winning people to Christ, sharing the gospel, and a grand total in one year in the, one of the largest cities in the world, not the largest of seven baptisms. What if he got discouraged and gone somewhere else? What if Kevin Wynn had not been reached by whoever gave him that tract, and now uh, you ought to go there, 7,000-seat auditorium, 12,400 people can be, be preached to at one time on his property, and they have two services in the morning, and a bad month they'll baptize 1,200. In a good Sunday, they'll baptize over 1,200. Last year, they baptized over 34,000 people. Laborers are really important. What of a happy and contented pastor seeing people saved and discipled happily serving God in sunny Southern California who had seen a debt-ridden, scandal-plagued, discouraged church helped and healed and revived and now functioning well and reaching their community with the gospel had not been willing to uproot his family and come to a financially burdened, scandal-ridden, discouraged place with a staff decimated and start all over again. Where would you be tonight, many of you, if it hadn't been for this labor? Labors are really important. What if the person who led you to Christ had not been faithful that day? What if the preacher that had preached the gospel had had an off day and decided just to give a little devotional ditty and send everybody home? Laborers are really important. 
What if there are five or ten or fifteen or twenty or fifty or a hundred people in this room and God, you knew it when you saw the flags. You knew it when you heard Brother Cowling's message. You knew it when you heard Brother Ramos this, this morning. You knew it when you heard Brother Williams on Monday night. And you've never publicly surrendered. But you know God wants you in his work the rest of your life. What if you don't go? How many churches will go unstarted? How many souls will go unreached. How many people will spend eternity in the lake of fire? My friend Mark Rasmussen sends me books sometimes. He sent me one the other day called The Fire of 1894. It's centered around, but it spread greatly from there, the town of Hinckley, Minnesota. The nearest city of any size in wasn't big then, wasn't big now, but Pine City, Minnesota was unaffected by the fire. I've preached in Pine City for Brother Tim Stratton. And the fire consumed from between 250 and 350,000 acres. And it killed somewhere between four and 500 people. And in the book, the man talked about what happens to people when they're burned. Any burn that is second degree or higher, that covers more than 20% of the body's surface, if left untreated, sets in motion a cascade of highly consequential events within the body in a process called fluid shift. Large volumes of plasma seep through the walls of the blood vessels into surrounding tissues, producing edema, a severe and grotesque swelling, the lips, the throat, the mouth, the swelling tissues press on blood vessels and internal organs. The swollen linings of the airways threaten to close off the flow of air to the lungs. Along with its load of plasma, the bloodstream loses the proteins, fats, sugars, and electrolytes that it normally carries, including chemicals like potassium, magnesium that regulate the function of muscles and various vital organs. The blood, lacking its liquid constituent thickens into a kind of sludge that the heart struggles ever more desperately to pump around the body. The lungs fill with fluid. Blood pressure drops precipitously. Body temperature drops, threatening hypothermia. Patients shiver uncontrollably even in a warm environment. Then burn shock sets in. The pulse grows weak and erratic. Fingertips and other extremities turn blue. Individual cells begin to die. Tissue is damaged and organs may fail. But serious burns are unusual compared to other wounds in that they do not heal themselves as time goes on like most other injuries. Instead, they get worse. The burn is an evolving wound. The inflammatory response that the body launches in an attempt to heal the burns spins out of control, overwhelmed by the magnitude of the damage, and the consequences spin far beyond the area of burned tissue. Flood of hormones, leukocytes, macrophages, and chemical messengers and mediators washes through the body, setting off reactions that alter the body's physiology in unpredictable and destructive ways, expanding vessels that should be contracting, clotting blood that should be thinning, killing off cells that should be left alone, releasing toxins into vital organs. 
The drive of oxygen and the dead tissue burns, penetrate the dermis. And they actually expand over time, working their way deeper and deeper into the underlying tissue, spreading outward with scavenger cells sent to destroy adjacent living cells. I could read more. I read that. I don't know what it's like to be in hell. I, I, I wish that the Seventh-day Adventists were right and it was just annihilation. I wish the liberals were right and the preacher Brother Hiles used to tell of was right when he said hell may be floating on a cloud somewhere without God. But the Bible says there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says uh, that the reserved in chains of darkness forever the Bible says that the worm, I think its memory, dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. The Bible says the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever. It would be an awful thing if somebody experienced that for a day. I could not imagine that kind of a situation for a year or 10 years or a hundred years. But maybe, maybe I can wrap my head around it at some point. But hell isn't for a day and hell isn't for 10 years and hell isn't for a hundred years and hell isn't for a thousand years. It's forever. And the people we don't witness to and the people we don't share the gospel with and the people that we're supposed to go and reach and go unreached and the people that God is calling you to serve him to reach and you refuse will die if they die without Christ and spend eternity there. When I was a little boy, the concept of eternity bothered me. The idea of something lasting forever boggled my mind. I'd never done anything I wanted to do forever. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go to heaven forever. I mean, you're stuck there. That's how I thought. I still don't understand it. I know enough to know now nobody's going to want to leave. <laughs> I know enough to know now we'll see the face of our Savior and happily spend the first thousand years or so just gazing into his eyes of fire and worshiping him. I know enough now to know that we'll have reunions with loved ones and able to meet the heroes of the faith that we have, have, have studied and read about in the Word of God. I know enough now to, to know that it's fabulous. When I was a little boy, you know what I decided? If I got to spend eternity somewhere, I guess I'd rather be heaven than hell. So, three thoughts and I'm through. Number one, God wants us to pray for labor. It's not in your daily prayer list. I would challenge you to make that decision tonight that by the grace of God, every day, at least once a day, you pray for laborers. God did wonderful things 
when my wife and I had the privilege of being at First Baptist Church of Bridgeport for 44 years, and I suppose the thing I, I rejoice the most about is they tell me some 200 people went out of our church and our Christian school into the work of God. Praise God. And I pray for laborers. I, I don't know how long I live, but I pray that God would give me as many in the rest of my life as he gave me in the first portion of my life. Second thing is, God wants us to be laborers. You see, you're part of the answer to Jesus' only prayer request. I don't mean being kind. I get to preach every week somewhere. I, uh, at one point, had 104 consecutive Sundays booked on my calendar. And I get in good churches, and I love the preachers, and they're nice people. But I'll tell you something. You'd be, maybe you wouldn't, you get out quite a bit. You'd be dismayed. How many churches don't have a regular weekly soul winning ministry? <laughs> They'll put out door hangers once a month on their Saturday bliss. They'll go every other week. I, I don't mean to be unkind. But your job is to maintain the building, sure. Your job is to, to preach Bible messages and give them the word of God, sure. Your job is to organize the Sunday school and, and your job is to, to see to it that the, the sick in the hospitals have a visit. But none of those is a bigger job than sharing the gospel with a world that's on its way to hell. Got a call one day, a lady in our church named Beth Laframboise. Her husband, Chris, was one of two children out of seven or eight in a Roman Catholic family that had been saved. And the other part of the family is very negative towards them. She said, Preacher, my sister-in-law, Julie White, Chris's sister, is dying of cancer. She's had three priests visit her, and each one left her more confused than the one before. Do you think you could go see her? She called me on a Wednesday. Those days I was out for Monday and Tuesday, fly back Wednesday, go and see my wife a little bit, go back to the office, do a little bit of work. Chrissy would come in. We'd go out and eat a bite, run some errands, make some visits. I said, sure. We drove to Freeland, Michigan. And I thought, I hope nobody from the family is there because they're so negative. We knocked on the door, and Julie let us in, and her mother was there. You're sitting in a wheelchair, emaciated like a concentration camp survivor, wig on her head. I said, Julia, sister-in-law Chris told us she might be having a hard time. And we thought we'd come by, see if we could pray with you. Is there anything we can do for you? And Julie looked up to me from her wheelchair, and she said, I'm scared to die. What's Mama going to say now? I said, I think I can help you with that. Would you mind if I showed you from the Bible how to know you'll go to heaven when you die? Oh, she said, I like that. I showed her the gospel. When I give the gospel to people, I, I try to make sure they, they understand it. I go through it a couple of times. 
briefly the second time, reviewing all the points. And then I say, if a person wants to pray and trust Christ, I'm happy to help them in a prayer. The prayer doesn't save them. It's not saying the words. It's meaning what the words say. And I tell them the prayer ahead of time so they'll know precisely what I'm asking them to do. And I said, we pray something like this, Julie. Lord, I'm a sinner. And she said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to go to heaven. She said, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I'm not real smart, but I had my head bowed by now. I prayed the rest of the prayer. She prayed it a phrase at a time after me. I said, Julie, did you mean what you said? She said, yes. Did you trust Jesus and him alone to be your Savior? She said, yes. I said, if you died today, where would you go? She said, I'd go to heaven. You could have led her to Christ. Anybody could have led her to Christ. She was open. She was willing. She was hungry. She was hurting. She was waiting for the gospel. And I had this, this flash of thought. A woman would call it intuition. I just called it a flash of thought. And I looked at the mother and I said, Mrs. Laframboise, when we prayed just now, did you pray and ask Jesus to save you? And she said, yes, I did. Labor is really important. I was preaching with Dr. George Crabb, attends your church now, Antioch Baptist in Detroit at a youth rally. I'd flown in from another meeting to Flint and didn't have time to go home, so I drove on down to Detroit, got there a little bit early, went to a Burger King. I was trying to lose weight. Burger King's a great place for that. My favorite weight loss place is Costco. Every time I go in there, I come out about $200 lighter. I got a chicken sandwich with no mayo and a Diet Coke. I was sitting eating my sandwich and making Sunday school calls on my cell phone. And I heard doodle-doodle-doodle-doodle-doodle-doodle. Doodle -doodle -doodle. I thought, well, somebody's cell phone's going off. Now, you ladies will not understand this. Men will understand this. A man's mind is like laser. If I had a laser pointer and aimed it to the rail of the balcony, all the energy would be on one tiny red dot. That's the way man's mind is. I got up to get a refill on my Diet Coke, and I found out it was not a cell phone going off. A guy that had a heart attack was lying on the floor, was surrounded by paramedics and police officers, and they were hooking up a defibrillator. And I watched. Defibrillators were real new then, and it's pretty automatic. It's says, stand back, preparing to shock, shocking, and wham, his body jerked, flesh gray, blue-gray. And I watched them shock him six or seven times, and I thought, well, I'm being a rubbernecker. I'm not doing any good. And I went into the restroom. I came back, and he was gone. And the Burger King employees were like this. One police officer was left. I said, sir, I'm a chaplain for the Saginaw County Sheriff's Department. I've been trained in critical incident stress debriefing. You think I might be of any help? Yeah, maybe he took me to the manager and she said, oh, please, talk to those kids. I don't know what to tell them. We gathered in a booth, <clears throat> six workers, <clears throat> told them what you do when you do critical incident stress debriefings, pretty practical stuff. And I said, can I talk to you for a minute as a Baptist preacher? You see something like this got to make you think. What would happen to me if I were in that condition? 
Can I tell you what the Bible says about being sure you're going to heaven? And they said, yes, one was already saved. The other five all trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Ah, you say, brother, well, that, nothing like that ever happens to me. Go to Burger King. <laughs> but here is the question. What would you have done if you'd been there? Would you have even given them a track? God wants us to be laborers. God wants us to pray for laborers. God wants some of us in this room. This has been the burden of Pastor Wilkerson. It has been the prayer of those who have prepared for this conference. It has been the desire of every participant that we see people in this meeting surrender to be laborers. He wants some of us in what we call full-time Christian service. He was 15 years old, burdened about his soul. He later said that he envied the horses in the field and the toads in the ditch because they had no soul like to perish under the weight of its sin as his was. One day, he happened into a little primitive Methodist chapel. It was a snowy day. In fact, the snow was so bad, the regular preacher didn't come, and only a handful of the regular attenders came, and he sat under the balcony. And he watched them huddle together and decide what to do, and it fell upon one of them, a man who was obviously not a preacher. Looked like a worker man who worked with his hands, but it fell on one of them to preach. He stood up, and he, he had a good text. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And the young man said, I thought I saw in his text a glimmer of hope. And after about 10 minutes, the man ran out of things to say. And he spied that young man sitting under the balcony. And he said, young man, you look very miserable to me. Well, the young man later said, I was. But I was not used to remarks being made about my person from the pulpit. And then he said, you'll always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But young man, if you look to Jesus, you can be saved. Oh, young man, look, look, look. And the young man said, I looked until I nearly looked my eyes away. And in that moment, the scales fell and I saw the light and the redemption of my soul was accomplished. And in those circumstances and in those surroundings was accomplished the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Every preacher in this room knows his name. Most laymen, most everybody who's a preacher has more, one or more of his books. What if? What if they canceled church that day? My pastor does the same thing I did. We never cancel church. Never. We have a neighbor who's a member. If he can walk across the driveway, we're having church. You don't have to come. If it's dangerous for you, you're old and decrepit, don't want to drive any ice, don't come. What if they hadn't had anybody? What if they decided, well, the preacher's not here, we'll read a psalm and sing a song and take the collection and go home. Labors are really important. Pray for labor.